Hello and welcome. I'm Natasha Short and you're listening to the Kimberley Jiggers Shiro Series podcast where we will be sharing the stories of local Kimberley Indigenous women. Tell you a story, ain't gonna tell you. Kimberley Jiggers seeks to amplify Indigenous women's voices and promote Australian Indigenous culture and women through storytelling. Through podcasts, we seek to share the experiences and wisdom of our most inspirational Indigenous women and learn more about the cultural ways and history of the people of the Kimberley region, Western Australia. These are the personal stories of their journey presented to you through our Kimberley Jigas Shira series. Please make contact if you would like more information. Good morning, everybody. And welcome to our next Kimberley Shiro series. And I've got in the studio today, we're doing it in a different way. We're doing a Zoom session today. And I'm in Kununurra and Dr. Francine is in Melbourne. So good morning, Francine. How are you? Good morning, Natasha. How are um, you going? Good? Uh, I'm really good, thank you. Now, now, please tell us your full name because I'm having a little bit difficulty in pronouncing it. Yeah. Well, my body name is Narab. Yep. And then Francine Richies. But um, Narab is, um, I'm named after one of our, my matriarchs. So my great-grandmother, I carry her name. Right, okay. Tell us a little bit about your country and where you come from. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I was raised in my mother's country, which is Bodhi Dowi. I was raised on Sunday Island, a little bit of Derby, and then when we relocated to... Arielun, which is one arm point. Yeah. But my father's side is my biological father's side is Garijari country. But I also had a stepfather, Bari as well. And and what was your childhood like? Oh, it was the best childhood because we just had so much freedom. You know, we were living living on the islands. We I travelled with my grandparents on the islands and we would go where there was water in the water holes and live on that island for a bit, that kind of stuff, yeah. and just living off the land. <clears throat> so everything, all our food just came off the sea. Wow. So and, healthy. You know, and there was a lot of, you know, occasional Asian, Asiatic mob that came with the pearling. They would give, give us rice, a bit of flour. So, yeah, I had a really good um, upbringing, childhood, and, of course, learning everything about survival in, in the body Jawi culture, you know? Yeah. And I'm um, just being free to do that. And my, especially my grandparents, you know, they taught me so much about bush medicines. You know, she used to use that. She, she'd go out to the bush and collect it and make the medicines for us, which is um, helpless. Yeah. Because we didn't have, we didn't have a clinic yeah. or a shop to go and get easy access to everything. It was, you know, everything was obtained from nature. Wow. How many people would have been there at that time? Like, was it a small community? <clears throat> well, I'm only sort of cutting short this story because it's just about me, but it goes way back um, to the mission days uh, and even further before the mission days yeah. when the people lived on Sunday Island, which we, we say Iwain. Yep. That's a body name for it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so during those days in the... Just before I was born in the 50s, they, um, you know, they had an assimilation process. The government, um, you know, started controlling the people and they wanted to assimilate the whole tribe, the Badi and Dowie tribe, to Derby. And, and they did a lot to 
discourage the mission from keep going on on, yep. on Sunday Island. Yep. You know, they started to take away rations and stuff. So it kind of forced a lot of the missionaries to to say, okay, well, they'll have to go where they can get yep. more food and, you know, medical supplies and Resources. stuff like that. So, so, they, so eventually before I was born, they were forced to move to Derby. Now, can you let me know where Sunday Island is? I've never been there. I've just heard about it. So when you get to One Arm Point, which is the tip of the Dampier Peninsula, yes. West Kimberley, and then there's islands, there's lots of islands. It's called the um, Archipelago. Archipelago, you know. Um, yeah. And one of those islands, is, it's about 20 minutes by boat. Wow. From One Arm Point. Yeah. So, and that's where a lot of people lived. And <clears throat> the people that couldn't, the old people that couldn't move to, to Derby. Yes ask the missionaries to ask the, the Catholic mission on Sunday Island. Yes. Could they come and stay there because that's their country too anyway. Yes. And so that was agreed and then the old people went over there. Yep. Yeah, and then a lot of the younger family moved to Derby and probably some to Broome, but mainly to Derby. Wow. See, I've been to one on point quite a few times. It's really one of the most beautiful places uh, across the Kimberley. You know that yeah. that blue blue water, the white white beaches, and I remember the trocar shells. Yeah, they're well, just so beautiful. Well, they're they're good for food. They're good for beauty um, products that like bangles, trocar bangles, trocar yeah. bangles. Well, you know the trocar shell was an industry there for people, so they actually exported it to Italy. They wow. had a buyer from Italy that that you know bought the. Trocus and they actually crushed it and made it into incense and other things. Right. And so that, that, that happened for a long time. Yeah. But it was only recently that it closed down. Yeah. But as you say, you know, they're, they're, you're still using the trocus to make beautiful bangles and earrings and all kinds of stuff. But is it as big today as what I remember it being, say, 30 years ago when I was a kid and I remember that was like something that was very prominent was happening a lot you know the tr gathering of the croker shells yeah well the families aren't really going out and you know getting it and then you gotta boil it up and get all that um meat the yes. shellfish from inside so a lot of the families aren't doing it they're only doing it now to polish the shells and make the jewelry you know but yes but before it was like 20 years ago when we were, when i was still living in one point yeah um you know, a lot of the families were going out each week yeah. when the tides were good yes. to go and get it. And they were, um, that was their income, you know, that was their business. Yeah. So that's not happening right now. But, you know, there's a lot of trokers that have bred up now. So they, I think, I think it might, industry. if they do get another buyer, they might, you know, go back into that because it's a really good way of the family making money. Oh, uh, Absolutely, but we'll talk more about the um, the economy side of opportunities for Aboriginal people later on. Um, but just just going back to Sunday Island and growing up there, you're saying there was a mission there, but you also had close access to your own family members to be able to still go out on country, experience that traditional way of life, learn from your old people. Yeah, it was country with the mission there. There was yes. no separation. Right. So people were free to live culture right, right there. You know, we hear a lot of places where, oh, 
the missions came and the missionaries just stopped the culture and the language. Well, this did not happen in one point. I mean, I can speak my language today, Bari. Yes. Because they never stopped it, you know? We yes. had We had good people that came. I mean, you know, there might have been a few individuals that um, did the wrong thing, but, you yes. know, it wasn't everybody and, you know, people are human. Yes. And um, so on the mission, it, everything was there. Yes. They had Christianity come in, but also yep. it didn't stop them from doing cultural activities. People were free to you know, choose. They were free to choose and it was just living it out, living living out your life. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So you're one of how many children, Francine? I'm one of um, six daughters for my mum. Yep. Yeah. I have got uh, two brothers and a sister from my father's side, my biological father's side from yes. Barajari country. Yes. Yeah. So I have a lot to do with them now. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. And what were your... What were your major influences as a youngster? Who who was mainly influencing you? Who were you around, you know, that was teaching you or that you, that you remember very fondly or very prominently in your mind? <clears throat> to me, it was every day growing up, growing yeah. up with your family, with your people. Yeah. And, you know, the really, really big influences were my grandparents, you know, my yes. grandmother and grandfather and then the extended family from there. You know, they were big influence. In, in, you know, doing the right thing, um, not being reckless, you know, and, and respecting the land, respecting the food, you know. We'd, we'd go and get um, turtle eggs when they were laying and, and, you know, we were told just get a few. You don't get the whole lot, yeah. you know, and you just leave the, yeah. the turtle Conservation. It was conservation from the start, you know. Yes. Everything was like that, you know. We were taught to respect it and respect yeah. one another. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. It is such a beautiful place. So what would your diet have been? A lot of fresh f- fish? Yeah. People love of, turtle as well? Yeah, we love our turtle. I've never tried turtle. Yeah, it's, well, if you had sushi, it's a bit like, it tastes a bit like that because it's that seaweed that wraps around the sushi. Yes. And that's what the turtle eat. <laughs> wow, so I do like sushi. Like, I'm gonna have to give turtle a go. Yeah, and you know, there's dugong and fish, and we've got oysters and all kinds of. I love uh, oysters too. Shellfish, you know, everything was just there, and it's still there today, you know, for us. Yes. And um, you know, the fruits and berries were just plentiful everywhere, and there were se- seasonal fruits, you know, like the we say madur, which is gabi. Yep which is also known as Kakadu Plum, you know, that was available to us twice a year. Like, So there yes. was, you know, all that vitamins and goodness that came out of that that sustained us. 50 times um, vitamin C than what an orange has, according to Pat Torres, because I did a uh, podcast with her and she collects gubbing. Yeah. No, she, it's amazing. Raised. It's a superfood. Yeah, I was raised, all of us were raised with that. Amazing. I buy that product off her now to use in my smoothies in the morning, you know? Yeah. But it's the best I, I, thing. It's the best thing. And I love I love how a lot of people are going back to their roots yeah. and making businesses now out of what they've been doing and using and knowing about for so yeah. long. But now suddenly there's a Western awareness. Yeah, well, we've always had the resources there that we could tap into. Yes. But, you know, we were just sort of waiting and because of... um. 
colonial rules and stuff that really changed the mentality of our people, you know? Yes. That, you know, we had to wait and, and, and just about wait for people to give us permission because we were so suppressed. Exactly. So suppressed. But now, yeah. you know, that we've got a different platform, you know, we're free to go and do our own tourism or uh, wish medicine businesses like that, you know, we could yeah. do that. And You know, you know, Francine, this, this, this system, like colonial system that has suppressed people and, and maybe we don't realise the extent of it sometimes and how much it has impacted people to continue to ask permission to do stuff. Yes. You look at me, I'm a different generation now. So I wouldn't think twice about asking a person for permission to do a certain thing if it's, you know, just normal stuff that's part of my life and what I want to do, you know? Whereas if I go and talk to a person and she's in her 60s or 70s, she might just say, oh, well, I just go and ask such and such if I can do that. I had it happen two days ago and I said, no, you don't ask that person if I can take a picture of you. You tell me if I can take a picture of you. Yeah, that's right. You know, and our parents and grandparents were in that world. And a lot of the time it was sort of handed down, you know, unconsciously. You know, it was just unconsciously handed down to us and, you know, Feeling shame, you know, shame, yeah. you know. Feeling guilt. Guilt and all that. But we don't have to do that. You Absolutely. Know, we don't have to be in that situation where we have to get permissions for our for our own resources and, and our own lives, you know. Yes. What we can yes. do. Absolutely. And I remember sharing a little bit about that at this camp that me and you attended at Urimalay a few months ago in yeah. regards to, you know, that traditional sense that we had of Wurnan and, cha- and trading you know, and giving things away and trading for goods that we needed in exchange. But I said, now we've got to have a change in our mindset. So now with people, we basically can sell our knowledge, sell our cultural knowledge, you know, yes. and, and, it's, and turn actually culture and knowledge into a business, not, not to cheapen it in any way, but to say that people can be the traditional owners and keepers, yeah. you know of those resources and use it now in a way that's beneficial to them in a Western sense of being able to, well, pay your bills. Yeah. You know, we've been given thousands of years of um, oral history that's been handed down to us. Yes. You know, we carry that. Yeah. And it's like, a, um, you know, for instance, you know, I've been to uni. I've got, I did my master's yeah. and then I've just finished my PhD. But, you know, being in that academic world, yeah. Where you're thinking, oh, I'm going to learn all these different academic things. I'm going to learn. But then, you know, I was constantly reminded by family and other good friends that, hey, you know, you're bringing in oral history. Yeah. You're the keeper of your knowledge. Yes. You know? It's so good. As much, much knowledge as what you get from, from the universities and other yeah. um, institutions, you know? So there's a two-way learning. So yeah. I've had to... With my um, research, I've had to teach a lot of, lot of my superiors, um, you know, supervisors and and the people up there, how to read my stories, how to understand our way of doing things. Yes. You know? so yes. We've got but it all. You know? We got it all, and you know what is so exciting to me right now is this interest in having indigenous-led. Um, empowerment projects take place mm. you know which is where people are now coming to us and saying hey we we are happy for you to be in the driver's seat and we're going to support you know what you innately know what your lived experience says yeah 
you know, and we want to be those role models as Aboriginal people for our people so we can be, um, you know, having our people aspire to, to, to doing something different or more or experiencing life in its fullness, I guess, you know, and, and, and we become the people who are like, if she can do it and she's from my community, she's from my family, she's from my culture, I can do it as well. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I, I became the researcher from within, I mean, you had researchers, you have all these people, anthropologists and other people that have been studying our people for so long. But, you know, they're looking from outside. And so yes. we're getting people like myself and others now that are coming from within with yes. that knowledge. You know, it so is. it's really exciting. It is. And I was talking to someone just recently about the number of people that, that for just as one example, learn an Aboriginal language, not for the purpose of really communicating, but for the purpose of getting a PhD done. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> crazy. Or some other equal crazy stuff. That's what we could call crazy because we want to um, be able to connect with our people in a real and authentic way, you know? Yeah. And um, we don't want to be assessed and we don't want to be, um, you know, researched anymore. It's sort of like, now let us be people now, you know, let us be real human beings that are capable of anything because hey, you know, um, we've got God-given talents, gifts and abilities. Yeah, we have, you know. We've so got all of that, you know. We've got all of that. Now, country means a lot to countrymen. Country means a lot for healing and connection and, you know, belonging. But you left country a long time ago. I wouldn't say I left country. Um, yeah. I just left because I had to take my children, you know, to get better education because yes. we had... We had limited things. We didn't have a high school then at, at one point. Yes. Um, but it started not long after. So, yeah, I had to take my um, children away for yes. that, to provide that. So Yes. But, but, but your, your connection to your country is so powerful. You regularly come back. But yeah. So you, still, you are still very connected to your community, but you're unusual in the sense that you've left country. That's not what many Aboriginal people from Kimberley do. They stay very, very close. They're afraid, really, you know, mm. to go too far. But you've been able to do exactly that for the, for the sake of your children being educated. You've moved to Perth. You've moved away further. But it's still, still only a phone call away for you, isn't it? Yeah, and we've got the grapevine, you know. And it's yeah. live, the Aboriginal grapevine. So yes. I, know, I know everything. Before <laughs> even social media happened, I knew everything that was happening in the community. Yes. You know, so I didn't miss out, really. It was yes. just my presence not there. But, yes. you know, I was always getting, you know, news, what was happening. Yes. And then, of course, when social media has come on board, you know, we see everything. People can go out fishing and they'll show you what they've got. Yes. That sort of thing and yes yes yeah, always being connected yeah and, uh, my country is my heart you know yeah and, uh, so is, how does it feel God for you in me in my heart you know absolutely so how do you feel when you might have been away for six months or whatever it's been and you come back there and you see that beach again yeah it's just so refreshing and healing to me every time i go back you know yeah and um yeah it's a beautiful feeling but also you know i could just close my eyes and drift back to country yes when i'm just thinking that i'm i could hear yes i just imagine that i'm i'm there on the beach listening to something and that that really um calms me down too <laughs> yeah absolutely it's so it's so amazing how that works you know because 
I'm traditionally from like desert area, you know, yeah. where there's not much water around, there's no blue seas or anything like that, but there's such a peacefulness. Yeah, you, you know? still love your country. You still love yeah. your country, hey. And God has given that in our country to us to tend yeah. it and look after it. Yes, mm. yes, absolutely. All right, so what, what have been some of the passions in your life that you've sort of put your hand to that you feel, I know you do a lot of art, and I know that's the qualification that you've just recently completed in your, your PhD there, healing through the arts and, and doing work for, you know, doing therapy with, with people through the, through using, using art. So in addition to that, what else drives you? What else, what do you love to do? Yeah, well, my inner self, my, you know, my passion inside is to, is to love God. Yeah. You know, that's my number one priority is, Yes. in God's family, you know. I've yes. always had that Christianity from when I was a child, you know, from my old people because they they saw the, you know, goodness in that and how it just sustained and kept us, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's stories in my, in my tribe going back where stories way back when, you know, Jesus came and showed, showed them things, showed them the water holes and, um, you know, yes. what fish and stuff to eat and what not to eat. You know, it's like passed down oral knowledge. Yes. And, you know, you don't hear much about it, but some of these um, old people had stories to tell us that we, we always known about God. Yes. You know, we knew he was there. I mean, there's other spirits and other things that yes. he deserved, but there was always this higher spirit and yes. we didn't know how to get to him until the book came, and that's the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, so Amazing. my my passion is that and then from that everything else flows, you know, like I've been given artistic talent, you know? And that's been used for ministry. It's been used to help people and then, you know, I saw what art was doing. Yeah. Um you know, cut a long story short, been been doing professional art for many years, you know, doing public art, running programs in schools, um, commissions. I've been part of Sculpture by the Sea. Yep. I've travelled overseas to Denmark and in yes. Europe yep. and took some of my work over there. So I've done a lot, you know, I've been blessed in that sense. Yes. And then coming to Melbourne and, you know, moved, we moved to Melbourne because um, our youngest son, got a scholarship to go to uh, a sporting academy over here. So that was another move to give them opportunity, the best opportunities that I missed, like from a Western sense, yes. even though I don't really, I can really say that I've missed anything, you know, yeah. prominent in my life. But yeah. then, you know, the world changes and this cultures change. And so opportunities came for my family. And so we, we took that, you know. And coming over to Melbourne and then, you know, starting the church here too as well. Yeah. But um, also running art groups. Yeah. I was running an art class here in Footscray and, um, and then I just saw how art activities that I was giving these um, older, we call them uncles and aunties over here, yeah. and <clears throat> how it was affecting them, you know. And then out of those groups I started to identify people that are part of the stolen generation, you know, 
they were taken away and they were coming in there and they were being part of community. Yeah. And then I saw that and I said, look, something's happening here and I want to really explore it. Yeah. And that was art therapy. You know, I really wanted to know because I saw it for myself, how it was happening without, with the mob there. Yeah. And so I went, I went to uni to, you know, do a lot of, lot of research and, you know, art therapy has been around for years and not so much in Australia, but, you know, it started in Europe yeah, way back, you know, in the 1940s and 50s or even yes. further than that, you know? Yeah. And how it was helping a lot of people and slowly, slowly it sort of moved around the globe. But now it's a big thing. Now it's a big thing. Join us next time for part two of Natasha's chat with Dr. Francine Ritchie. Stay connected with us by following Kimberly Jiggers on all social media platforms, rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share the podcast with your family and friends.